Executive Director of Library Land Project. I'm Adam Zand. I'm uh, president of the Library Land Project. And uh, we're starting a series of Library Land conversations. Uh, you know, an opportunity to chit chat with people in the library world about kind of what's going on. And uh, you know, it's something we really miss about our travels around Library Land, the chance to sit down with uh, library workers and library fans. And so Here's, uh, I think, how we're going to try to make up for that. Yeah, I, I agree. Over the years, we've met with hundreds of people, uh, all kinds of connection to public libraries. They could be library workers, or they may be people with a special affinity and a history in libraries. And while their roles in libraries are obviously different, um, every one of these people we've met has demonstrated just a care and a reverence uh, for these in institutions so we, we want to help share some stories, uh, share their interests and experiences. Um, and that's the main reason we're here and starting um, the library land conversations. Okay. Uh, thank you, Adam. And uh, thank you to our first guest, Jessamyn West, um, librarian technologist from the Great Green Mountain State of Vermont. And, you know, someone, you know, we met in September, I think, of 2019 at Tiverton. And like our, that meeting, that conversation for me was pivotal. Uh, you know, you kind of described a path of librarianship that I could imagine myself following. And, uh, and I'm on that path now. And so you are one of my library idols. And uh, it's just a real pleasure uh, to check in with you. Uh, you know, I think the thing that uh, it would be great to start with, I think, is maybe kind of describing your background and what you do now and um, kind of your, your your style of librarianship. Super. Yeah, I, um, I've been a librarian of some stripe since the mid-90s. Um, I went to library school at the University of Washington uh, back when it was not yet the iSchool, so I have a master's in librarianship is what my degree says, which I always think is hilarious because I was like the last the last cohort in that, in that, Before genre, I guess. Um, and ever since then, um, at the time I lived in Seattle, obviously, and I've always also been really into computers. I grew up in a very tech forward, tech positive household. My father was a technologist. And so for me, technology was fun. You know, it was video games and solving problems and not scary, it was just something you could deal with. And so when I got out of library school, um, I started doing technology work, first with Seattle Public Library, and then I worked with an internet service provider. And, but what I really wanted was to live in the country, right? So cut, cut to, you know, 20 years ago, and I moved to Vermont, very excited, gonna be a rural librarian, blah. But it turns out, if you're really good with computers and you live in a rural, area, you're not the rural librarian. The rural librarians do everything, not just computers. I'm not actually good at everything. Um, I'm not great at programming. I'm not skilled with children. Um, and other people are. So like, that's amazing for them. And so being somebody who's a technologist, but also with a library background, 
and pretty good at talking about the stuff. Um, my niche has really been helping libraries help their patrons solve technology problems and at a larger level talking about some of the like local rural issues we deal with here with digital divide uh, kinds of things. So you guys talk about missing visiting libraries and talking to people. And yes, I miss talking to you very much as well. I really miss, like one of the things I dream about at night, and it's really feels weird um, to me, is like going to library conferences and that serendipitous meeting random librarians, either who know me or who I know, and getting to talk about our shared interests, whether it's helping libraries with technology problems, dealing with digital divide issues. You know, every state has digital divide issues, no matter how rural or how urban they are. You know, getting to talk to people about the things that I care about, which I've done a little bit lately, but not clearly as much. And, um, you know, hearing what's going on other places, right? I have a very grounded, I kind of know what's going on in the whole state here, but even Maine or Connecticut, which is not that far from me, has slightly different issues. And so that's a big thing that I miss. And so I do a lot of consulting. I write a column for Computers in Libraries magazine about technology. Um, I'm starting up a virtual drop-in time, which is a continuation of the drop-in time I've been doing locally for about 15 years just very informal, helping people with technology problems. And the library finally decided in 2021, they want to pay me for it, which is just very exciting. I mean, pay a little bit like, uh, and, um, you know, I also do kind of webinar, seminar, talking and writing about digital divide and library technology issues. So it's a, it's a weird patchwork of stuff. Uh, I also do some community moderation at metafilter.com, which employed me and kept my head above water while I was kind of working up to the level of the stuff I do now. And it's been helpful for them to have a longtime person working on Sundays. And it's helpful for me to feel like I'm part of a team, which really is a thing that I miss living alone, you know, during this global pandemic, as much as my internet friends are my real friends, it is nice to have like a group of buddies that I can talk about an ongoing set of issues with. Absolutely. How have those issues changed, you know, from from the start of the drop in the center and the start of trying to work on the, those digital divide issues and then the real fissure that happens, you know, in in 2020? Like, you know, what's that looked like on the ground? Well, I mean, I always talked about, um, you know, in my digital divide talks, because in many cases, people are using, you know, all manner of sort of technology you know, for better or worse, and most of that technology is designed by young Bay Area men, you know, or Brooklyn area men, or research triangle area men, and women to a certain degree, but not as much. And those men have a tendency to have decent vision, despite all of our glasses. Um, and, you know, they don't have a bunch of shaky hands. And so a lot of that technology isn't being designed for the full range of people. Universal who it. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I would talk about those kinds of things in kind of a look. One of the reasons teaching technology and helping people get good at technology technology is important is, you know, access, of course, right? Like, hey, you don't speak English very well, but you're fluent in Spanish. There's a whole internet in Spanish, but maybe you don't know how to get there. Let me help. 
or, oh, you can't read anything on the screen because your vision's kind of crappy, but if you hit like control plus, 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 suddenly the internet is there for you. Amazing, right? And those kinds of issues, like it's important that libraries as one uh, community organization get in front of it, those issues are important to get out ahead of because if you have a problem like, you know, before last year, it was like, remember Hurricane Irene when you needed to use technology to get in touch with Federal Emergency Management Agency aid? You know, it would really be great if you weren't also learning to use your phone when you needed your phone to get money to stay alive. And that was the story. And last year, the story very quickly became anybody without digital skills suddenly needs to do their job, do their school, figure out how to, you know, access whatever the heck it was. And it was scary, right? It was scary for us in the library because the, we knew how many people were unprepared. It was scary because we were getting a bunch of phone calls from people being like, my kids got to go to digital school and we don't have the internet. Yeah. And then the problems break down into things that you don't think are the problem, right? Like it wasn't just a money problem, which is what we've been saying. And it wasn't just a, I don't have the knowledge problem, which is what we've been saying. You know, in my community in central Vermont, the pro problems were we can't afford a guy to dig a trench from the road to the house up the driveway because that guy gets paid real money and he's expensive. And that's the problem with getting this house access oh. to the internet. And the reason they didn't get it is because they can't afford the guy. And those are problems that can be solved, but they often require more than just a household to address it. And the library, which is already doing a lot of other stuff, was one among many community members working on that. And in many cases, I would sit in on these phone calls being like, okay, you know, once they get on the internet, I can help with some handouts and, you know, maybe some coaching. And we were still talking about getting the guy to dig the trench for a really long time. And each of those things, every household that was digitally divided had a unique situation in many cases. And you see the national narrative being like, well, they just got to figure it out. And you're like, how do you think that happens? Right. How do you think that happens? And, yeah. you know, it happens because libraries in many cases who are dealing with their own challenges are also trying to help these uh, people get the access, the tools, the technology that they need in order to work on this problem. It, it, I love where you're going with this. Do you think libraries just based on the experience of going through recessions or going through, um, you know, economic strife and social strife are almost better set up as an institution to deal with that and, and serve their communities? Or does it really depend from library to library? I mean, as one of the things I think you guys have figured out, right, the personality of the library is really community determined, staff determined, trustee determined, not even staff as much as like management, right? So we're seeing libraries in Vermont, again, like I'm sort of speaking to what I know and I can sort of generalize about what I don't know. You know, we're seeing libraries here that like immediately we're like, okay, curbside or my library says at the door because it's up a freaking flight of stairs. But like, 
you know, immediate, like curbside, blah, like resources to your door, summer reading program, blah, 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 blah. And then other libraries that honestly mostly closed, you know, and then kind of slowly, I'm talking to one library that I did drop in time with over the mountain. And, you know, they haven't done any virtual programming at all until 2021. I'm helping them get some geared up. They're in a community of 900 people. They used to have kind of a hippie cult there. It's a very specific community. But I mean, like a, a year without those services or, or almost a year. I mean, that, that just seems almost negligent. Well, it's it's really interesting, right? Because I really try to like see the positive in everything. And, you know, the librarian there has been very, you know, proactive interacting with her community, using social media on the phone. You know, they've had some in library, they've had more in library browsing actually than many other libraries because they have like a rubric that's like, if we've got an active case in town, we close the library and it's 900 people and we're in Vermont. So in many cases, their library has been open even when my library in town has not been open. Yeah. But yeah, I think the librarian made certain assumptions based on her own framework, which is she doesn't love the internet and she thinks it's difficult and aggravating, although she powers through it professionally yeah. you know, for her job. But I think she feels that people feel how she feels. Similarly, I wish people felt how I feel, which is like technology's fun. You can use it to solve problems. You can play Scrabble on the internet every night, you know, trivia every night. Like, you know, like it's, I wouldn't say it's a party, but I do feel like I've been able to make the best of it. Yeah. In cases where I have, whereas I think other people making the best of this situation does not involve a lot of technology and they presume that's how other people feel. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. I mean, well, <laughs> it, it is. It makes its own kind of sense, kind of. <laughs> yeah, a slightly flawed kind, but it still is. A, uh, it, it still does make sense. Um, you know, as we kind of look at kind of those those issues that have kind of been kind of uncovered or put in higher relief with this pandemic. I mean, what do you think is going to be post-pandemic? I mean, as we're kind of dealing with you know civil unrest now and uh, you know social justice and you know, hopefully the tail end of the virus and then an economy that's been just decimated. Like, what what does service look like? I mean, what kind of things will people expect and what, what will we be able to provide? Well, we've been really lucky in Vermont, I mean, in so many ways, but in one way, because our state librarian, who's kind of new, is warm, you know? And so we have, we have like a first Thursday program that we do with the Vermont Library Association. And we had a board meeting uh, yesterday, I guess. And he's part of that. And, you know, he shows up and he's like, I really hope everybody's taking care of themselves. I hope you're taking care of each other. I hope you're being, you know, sort of kind to one another because as difficult as everything is, enduring institutions like the library know that you can't give up. You know, you got to do something. And so, you know, I feel like with some of the social justice stuff, libraries were already out ahead of that in some ways. And in other ways, I feel like they're dealing with the harder part of that problem, which is that librarianship is unbearably white and it creates specific actionable problems that can be over time addressed and unlearned. And I think 
you know, the George Floyd murders and follow up on that has gotten more libraries more smart about that instead of like just having diverse collections, which we do in many, almost all cases that I'm familiar with, you know, the library collection is often more diverse than the population, um, at least in Vermont, which isn't hard. Um, but, you know, dealing with the issue with staffing and dealing with how whiteness and white supremacy can infect uh, a workplace and how that trickles down, you know, Christmas in the library is always my thing to talk about because I can talk about it from my perspective without trying to take on somebody else's voice and explain why having a Christmas tree feels weird to me personally, you know, someone who's culturally Jewish and doesn't love Christmas. And so, you know, thinking about that, thinking about the insurrection um, has caused, uh, you know, the domestic terrorism, let's be really clear, yep. has caused people, I feel like, to think a little bit more about how we both sides a lot of issues in the name of neutrality and how maybe that's not appropriate. That is a status quo maintenance but, program, neutrality. But we were talking about it in libraries a little bit. Yeah. And I feel like now we're ready to take that next step. Yeah, to objectivity. And be willing to say these things are true and these things are not true. Yeah, objectivity has, like, there are facts. And if you want, you know, to see that movie vaxxed, we don't carry it in our library because it's garbage. Yeah. And and it's okay. Like, if people want to inform themselves about both sides of things, like, that's not my tack, but it's fine. We can interlibrary loan it for you, but we're not spending your money on it because blah. Um, and then I think with economic issues, we've been okay at that in general. I think we're getting better at learning to partner with other organizations and not trying to do everything ourselves. Um, you know, I think Ryan Dowd and his homeless library project has kind of helped people get their heads around. I mean, he's got some issues, but um, help people get their heads around what's appropriate for a library to do for their patrons experiencing homelessness and what should the library maybe not do, but also try and work with you know, there are other community organizations. So I feel like libraries were poised in some ways to start addressing this issue. And this has really kickstarted us. And from a very basic perspective, my library now does curbside printing and it never did. And it always should have, and it always you know, will. you email a PDF to the librarian, you pick it up at the door. You don't have to use a library computer and sneeze on it. Everybody's better off. But we wouldn't have done it if this hadn't forced our hand. And I think many libraries are finding those, oh, you know, there's a lot of people who come to our virtual programming. You know, many people who don't want to drive at night would be happy to go to a nighttime program if they could do it at home halfway in their pajamas. Yep. <laughs> Adam, look like you were about to say something. I'm I, I'm wondering just where uh, it, once again it, it depends what the library is, what part of the nation it is, but w what resources do you sort of rely on to sort of continue your education, or or where should other people turn to if if they're if they're sort of struggling with how do we how do we bring some of this into our mindset of how we um, represent all of our communities? Well. 
again, it depends on your community, but I think in many cases there are, you know, lots of voices. Like I'll just use a, you know, a, a me personally example, because I have a hard time telling people what to do, sort of. Um, but I can tell you what I do as kind of a, you know, like I spend a lot of time on Twitter following both library people, Metafilter people, very online people. But also I have some groups on Twitter that I spend, I pay a lot of attention to, but I don't spend a lot of time yammering at. Like disability Twitter, I learn so much about accessibility issues from people who deal with them every day. And, you know, some of those people are just mad all the time. Most of them aren't. They're just talking about their thing. I mean, because there are, you know, when we talk about intersectionality, it's not just like, oh, you know, I'm a person of color and as well I am gay. It can also be like, you know, I'm somebody who is dealing with disabilities and as well depression, right? Super challenging. And, you know, following along without being like, oh, at my library, we're so awesome about this. No one cares. Shut up. Like, unless you have thing to add that might be literally sort of unique and helpful to that person. Yeah. Um, you know, Black Twitter, I think a lot of people know, is a thing. Um, not a person of color. I do not talk <laughs> on Black Twitter. It's not for me. But I can pay attention to, you know, what people of color are saying and talking about. There was a great thread like two days ago, yesterday, you know, about being an introverted Black person at a tech job and, you know, getting demerits for not being a team player because they're all talking about the TV show in the group Slack that you don't watch and nobody's watching what you're watching, Ugh, you know, and that just perpetuates whiteness, right? You get called not a team player because you don't just want to BS with people about a thing you don't know anything about and they're not discussing your culture. And you don't care about them. Right. And, and you shouldn't have to, frankly. Yeah, you not have to. How about, how how about at a, a higher level and maybe without naming names, you know, do you think associations have a responsibility and, and even some of the colleges and universities that, you know, they just need to be on top of these things or? Yeah, and I think within the library world, you know, we've got Reforma, we've got the Black Caucus, we've got, you know, American Indian Library Association, we've got Asian Pacific American Library Association. Like, there's no excuse for not understanding the issues that are facing at least different sort of ethnic groups. There's, you know, the, I think Rainbow Roundtable, huge about GLBT issues, you know, trans issues have been huge in librarianship, not just in, you know, which people to not invite to your library, but also like, how do you deal with pronouns and authority control, right? How do you deal with pronouns within your library? You know, oh my God, we have this stupid ILS that doesn't allow us to change you know, you've got to use an honorific, Mr. Ms. whatever, like, and there's no MX option. Like, uh, like, that's your responsibility. And so I feel like library associations, I mean, frankly, ALA is more diverse than librarianship, right? I feel like the people who belong to ALA, ALA with the black president, the black executive, uh, you know, the black executive director, the incoming Asian American uh, president, like, like at the higher levels, ALA population has a lot of diversity of you know backgrounds genders GLBT etc doesn't have as much class diversity because ALA is freaking expensive and you know a lot of other issues that confront it 
But I feel like there really are ways to pay attention. And I think the thing we are, when I say we, I mean, you know, middle-aged white lady, we um, are coming to grips with is it can be awkward to be a white person doing racial justice work because there are many contradictions in racial justice work for white people. Like that we're supposed to get out ahead of things on the one hand and not make people of color do the work. On the other hand, we should be amplifying people of color's voices above our own because they're the ones who are you know, dealing with and grappling with these issues. And those things are both true. And I think a lot of more sort of rigid thinking white people, and I have a hard time with this myself, are like, it's hard. It's confusing. I don't like it. I'm going to sit at home and read my genre fiction, which is all white people. And what can you do? Um, so I do think at the higher levels, there are associations that are dealing with this um, and they can talk about it. It's not really appropriate to look to the people of color in your organization to do that job for you. Um, and the more your hiring practices reflect what your actual community looks like, the more you don't have to expect, you know, individual people to be doing this work. Right. Well, oh yeah, Adam, you're pointing to your watch, but you don't even wear a watch. <laughs> Are you wearing a watch under that sweater? Pretty, pretty subtle way of saying that, um, you know, sadly, uh, we're, we're sort of winding down, but, you know, with apologies to the, um, what was it, the, the actor studio, the, uh, the one question, we're not going to ask you your favorite swear word, but we, we do want to know, um, a favorite library memory from, from the past or present. I don't know. Yeah. What's, get, share a, share a favorite library memory with us. I have a quick, present family memory when I went to talk to the librarian about doing some virtual programming I actually met met her actually met her at the library and went inside a library for the first time in several months oh, and I think it's been good. maybe my whole life before I've you know gone that long before and just being inside was great my favorite memory may be that I used to know a guy who worked at Thomas the sort of online congress all the all the laws database. And so technically that was underneath the Library of Congress. And I went to visit Washington DC for work. Uh, I think I was at like the Medical Library Association conference. I don't know why the heck I was there. And he's like, oh, hey, if you're in DC, come on, I'll give you a, you know, a tour of the Library of Congress. And it was all like weird, creepy back alleys and spiral staircases and doors that looked like they were closets that went into like super strange places and like, there wasn't anything particularly like, ooh, about it. It definitely wasn't like, ooh, fancy, I'm going to touch Abe Lincoln's hat situation. But I love the fact that, like, for many of us who don't work in a library most of the time, the library is the public part of the library. Yeah. But realistically, there's so much going on. It's like a metaphor as well as being totally true. You know, in the background, in the basement, I feel like you can learn more about a library by understanding what is in its basement than you almost can by just walking around in the stacks and talking to the people. I always ask, like, do you have a creepy basement or attic when I'm going to visit libraries in Vermont? And you'd be surprised how often. Yeah, they, they, if you ask if there's a creepy basement or a clock tower, 
we've we've had chances to see both, and it, it really is true. You you get to see kind of the, like how the building was built, when it was expanded, like what kind of things were going on. Um, yeah, it's a real treat. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, like the weird golden shovel that they keep in the basement from when they did the groundbreaking for the new building 35 years ago. And like, you can't throw it away, but it's just in some corner. What the heck is this? And you learn so much and it's another, you know, it's another connection with not only, you know, the building and the library, but just sort of how the community grew and evolved. And it is sort of my favorite thing. I'm sorry, gentlemen. This was me doing a lot of talking, and I know you wanted to do some talking too. This is kind of the I guess. We uh, hear each other talk all the time. This yeah. this was uh, my intention was to hear you talk, um, but but this is awesome. I mean, uh, you know, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, and uh, it's always my pleasure. You know, maybe sometime in person again, right? Someday we'll meet again. That's what they say, and I'm sticking to it. Next year in Jerusalem, although it's this year now, so yeah. And, and, in, and in the meantime, we'll we'll see you in our favorite respite uh, Mondays at three o'clock for the seventh inning stretch. Uh, Jessamine and Greg and I spend a lot of time uh, listening to music and chatting away about uh, lots of interesting topics. I do tell people like, oh yeah, I watched the Red Sox organist play hits from his home on Monday afternoons. And they're like, you what? I'm like, yeah, you gotta make your own fun, you know? It's worth it. Well, I, I you know, th I, I'll, I'll turn to our audience, um, you know, even though we're not sure if we're gonna have one, but thanks for watching today's Liberland conversation. Um, we're gonna keep doing these. We'll, we'll share more voices. Um, we'll post on YouTube and post on our websites and the like. Uh, we've been inspired by so many people out in library land and we're missing those conversations. Uh, so, so this, this format really makes sense for us. Um, Greg, you want to invite people to reach out to us? Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you have comments or suggestions or ideas for guests, or if you want to be a guest yourself, um, send us a note at info at librarylandproject.org. And we'll uh, we'll be happy to hear from you, really. Jessamine, I will turn it back to you. If people want to get in touch with you, are there social channels they should reach out to, or you know? I'm basically Jessamine everywhere. So I'm Jessamine on Facebook. I'm Jessamine on Twitter. I'm Jessamine at gmail.com. I'm Jessamine.com, and I am Jessamine.info. <laughs> I actually had a drop-in time lady. Because normally I'm doing virtual drop-in time, so like Zoom or Skype, I'm not good at the phone. I don't hear super well on it. She tracked down my phone number on the internet, which oh. it is on the internet. Please yeah. don't call me. Um, but I was like, dang, that lady almost doesn't need my help if she can figure out how to call me on the phone. So I'm pretty easy to get in touch with, and I always answer my email. All right. Well, again, thank you very much, and we'll see you again Adam, certainly, when I will see each other again so soon, and, and Jessamine, hopefully, we'll see each other in person before too long. I will let you know next time I am in Massachusetts. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Library Lane. Stop on my way.